0: a Canadian import for the night. Do we have any Canadians in the room besides me? No dual citizens here? Okay, it's just me. All right. <laughs> I hope I don't get a pie in the face like the youth ministers. <laughs> I was like, if that's how you treat your youth ministers, I don't know what you do to Canadians. But All right, well, I, I want to begin with a question. You know, if you're studying history, one of the things we often learn about is slavery. Now, if we think about slavery and the injustice of it, for just a moment, is slavery something that is only a problem of the past? Or does it also exist today? We know, tragically, that it's not just a historical injustice. It also exists today. Human trafficking is rampant. In fact, tens of millions of our fellow human beings around the world right now are currently enslaved. There was a guy by the name of Zach Hunter, When he learned that number, tens of millions of people just like him, but not like him, because they're enslaved, when he learned that, he felt really bad. But then Zach realized it's not enough to just feel bad. I'm going to interrupt my own story to say, where's my clicker? (laughs) I just realized I'm up here, but I I can't click. But if we could have a clicker brought up, that would be great. I don't need it advanced just yet. So Zach Hunter realized it's not enough to simply feel bad. Oh, we're going to clap for the clicker? (laughs) Wow this is thank you let's give it up If that's how you react, for the arrival of a clicker, I expect even better at the end of my presentation. I'm just telling you that. (laughs) So back to Zach. So Zach realized it's good to feel bad about injustice, but that's not enough. You have to do something about it. So Zach started to think, what can I do about my fellow human beings who are, who are enslaved? And then he got this idea. He's like, I'm going to raise money. There's organizations that are trying to free modern-day slaves, but they need help. He goes, so I'm going to help them. And he decided to raise money. He created this campaign called Loose Change to Loosen Chains. And what he did is he went around to people he knew and he said, hey, if you have you know, quarters and coins and pennies, we don't have pennies in Canada anymore. Do you guys still have pennies here? Yeah, we got rid of them, it's so weird. Anyways, I won't even take American pennies in Canada, even though your money is stronger than ours. So anyways, he was telling people to collect. Yeah, you're really excited about that, aren't you? (laughs) So he asked people to gather all the change they had. And the first time he asked people to do this, he raised almost $10,000. Word began to spread about Zach, who he was and and what he was doing. He ended up being featured on CNN as a modern-day hero. He's since then authored four books. But it's interesting that when Zach began his campaign, he was only 12 years old. 12 years old when he responded to the injustice of human trafficking. Now, not only is slavery a problem, but so is homelessness. And homelessness is particularly a problem in cold climates like here or St. Louis or where I'm from in Canada, where it can go to like 40 below freezing. So if you don't have a home and you're living outdoors in temperatures like that, your very life is in danger. And there's a part, in, a part of Canada called Winnipeg. Jokingly, is referred to as Winterpeg because it gets so cold there. And uh, there were a couple people driving in their car on a really cool day in Winnipeg. And as they're driving in their car, one of the people in the car, Hannah Taylor, looked out her window and she saw in the back of this building there was this large dumpster and it was overflowing with garbage. And on the top of all that garbage was a homeless man going through everything, trying to get some food. Hannah couldn't get that image out of her mind. She went to her nice warm home and that night went into her nice warm bed and all she could think about was that man in the freezing cold who didn't have a home. And like Zach, Hannah realized, I need to do something to help this man and people like him. And so Hannah created an organization called the Ladybug Foundation where she raised millions of dollars to help the homeless. She once gave a talk to over 16,000 people. And, And when Hannah began her campaign, she was eight. She was eight years old when she responded to homelessness. So we have the problem, the injustice of modern-day slavery. We have the injustice of poverty and homelessness. It's also the problem we often hear a lot about in our schools of bullying, the injustice of bullying. And I want you to imagine someone being bullied not by their classmates, but by their classmates' parents. That was an experience for a student who went to school in the last century here in America, a student by the name of Ruby Bridges. Ruby was living in the southern states, in the 1950s and 60s, she was, she was growing up when schools became desegregated. So you had, initially you had blacks-only and whites-only schools, and then in the 1950s they became desegregated so that the black and white students were to go to school together. And Ruby Bridges was selected as an bl- African-American to go to what had previously been a whites-only school. And the day she arrived to attend class, the parents of all the white kids were standing outside like a large mob. And they were screaming and they were yelling and they were spitting because they did not want a black kid to go to their white kid's school. But nonetheless, Ruby bravely marched through those bullies and into the building and the day she did that, Ruby was six years old. Only six years old. When I think about Ruby, or I think about Hannah, or I think about Zach, what comes to my mind is that although they were different ages, although they were from different places, although they were responding to different injustices, they had something in common. And what they had in common were three things. They put others ahead of themselves. They had perspective. And they did the right thing even when it was hard. They put who ahead of themselves? Others, whether an individual or some great cause. They had what? Perspective, which is all about saying, I can change how I see the thing that's in front of me. I can't necessarily control other people, but I can control how I respond and whether I'm silent or reacting to injustice. Perspective, how do I control my response and see things differently? And that third quality was they did what thing even though it was hard? The right thing. It wasn't easy to do what they did, but they all did it. Now here's why I bring that up. We've all gathered here to respond to another injustice, the injustice of abortion the killing of the youngest of our kind. And if we think about it, what's at the heart of what we believe? What's at the heart of the pro-life message is the three qualities that Zach and Hannah and Ruby demonstrated. What's at the heart of the pro-life message is we need to put others ahead of ourselves. We need to have perspective. And we need to do the right thing even when it's hard. And so tonight, I want to talk about those three qualities in more detail and how they are lived out in the pro-life message. If we think about that first quality, that of putting others ahead of ourselves. A few years ago, I was debating with a teenager on abortion. She was supporting it. I was obviously against it. As we were debating, she said to me rather frustratingly, look, if you have a baby in one hand and a fetus in the other hand, you obviously pick the baby. And I got thinking about babies versus fetuses and I thought, you know, if we had a newborn baby in this room and we thought, well, let's lay the baby on a blanket, let the baby have a nap. We all leave and come back in an hour. When we come back in an hour, will the baby still be alive? Yeah. Now if we had a fetus in the room and we just decide to take the fetus out of the mom and lay the fetus on a blanket and leave the room and come back in, would the fetus still be alive? No. So I thought to myself, you know, babies are stronger compared to fetuses which are weaker. And I therefore thought what the girl actually said to me was, if you have a strong person in one hand and a weaker person in the other hand, you obviously pick the stronger person. And the moment I translated what she'd said to that, I thought, I actually don't think that's true and I need to prove that to her and I thought I'm going to prove it by telling a story. And as it should happen, as she made that comment to me, an image went off in my head like a bomb. It was this. It's a picture my friend posted on Facebook. Now, I am a happily recovering social media addict, so I am not on social media at all, but you can find me on my website, Uh, (laughs) loveunleasheslife.com. But back in the day, when I was on social media, I was scrolling through my Facebook newsfeed, and my friend posted this picture. As you can see, it's nothing that fancy. It's the type of picture you'd probably ignore. But I said to this girl I was talking with, what you said about babies versus fetuses reminds me of this picture my friend posted on Facebook. Above the picture my friend had written, my husband is a hero. And I'm looking at that picture thinking, why? So then I kept reading the rest of my friend's post. And here's what she wrote. She said, my husband's a paramedic. At midnight, he was called to the scene of a car accident. The woman had been driving down the road, she lost control of of her car, it spun around several times, and then it landed in a nearby river. When my friend's husband got to the scene of the accident, he saw that that woman who had been driving was sitting on the roof of her sinking car, and she was holding her 10-month-old baby in her arms. My friend's husband jumped into the river, swam towards the car, and then realized He could only take one person at a time to shore. Now, I looked at this girl I was debating with, and I asked her a question. I said, who do you think he picked first? And she said, the baby. I said, that's correct. Why, I said. And she said, well, it's obvious if he took the mom to shore first, by the time he swam back to the car, the baby could have rolled in the river and drowned. Correct, I said. So in a sense, he took the baby first because the baby was weaker and the mom was stronger. And we realized when we have a strong person like the mom and a weaker person like the baby, that we should put weaker people ahead of stronger people, right? She's like, yeah, what's your point? And I said, well... If we go back to what you said about babies versus fetuses, fetuses are weaker than babies, and since you think we should put weaker people ahead of stronger people, shouldn't we put the weaker preborn child ahead of all of us who are born? She looked at me and said, you argue really well. Now, <laughs> what I like to say is that's not arguing. That's being a good storyteller and asking some important questions. But here's why I bring that up. We all recognize that that paramedic, when he jumped in the river, was putting the other ahead of himself. We recognize that when that mom said, take my baby first, she was putting the other ahead of herself. And we celebrate that because we think that's beautiful because we think we should be selfless, not selfish, right? So if we believe that about the baby in the mom's arms, why don't we believe that about the baby in the mom's womb? if we believe others should be put ahead of ourselves. Now some people might say, well, there's a difference. A baby in the mom's arms that's 10 months old is a human being, but the fetus, the embryo, they're not human. So often what we first need to do as pro-lifers is convince people that embryos and fetuses are human like the rest of us so that if we believe we should put others ahead of ourselves, then they'll start to put the human fetus Ahead of themselves. How do we convince people the fetus is human? Well, the first thing I like to do is ask people an open-ended question. Or, or not an open-ended, but a general question. And the question I'll ask is this. I'll say to someone, do you believe in human rights? Now, if you were to ask a stranger walking down the street if they believed in human rights, what do you think they're going to say? Yeah, they're going to say, yes, I believe in human rights. So now imagine you grab your smartphone or whatever, and then the moment they say they believe in human rights, you go to Google Image and you call up an image of a one-celled embryo, and you show them this picture and say, okay, what about this human's rights? Now the moment they look at that picture, what are they going to say in response to your question? That's not a human. And the moment they say that one-celled embryo isn't a human, you just ask another question. You ask, what? Are the embryo's parents? Is the pregnant woman human? Is her partner human? If yes, wouldn't it follow that this embryo is human too? Because two human parents are not going to produce a cat, right? It it, it can't happen. You know, one day I worry. I mean, these. these, (laughs) I worry that these people are going to show up in my audience. You know, because if you just go to Google Image, couple with cat, I mean, there they are, right? So you make the point that two humans are gonna produce another human. So the embryo must be human. Now, someone might say, well, even if technically that embryo's human, the embryo's not alive. And if that's what someone says, we just ask another question. We say, is the embryo growing? So is the one cell growing into two, and four, and eight, and doubling every time? If yes, wouldn't it follow this embryo's living? And if, yes, the parents are human, wouldn't it follow the embryo's human? And if, yes, I believe in human rights, then wouldn't it follow this living human has the same human rights as you or me? At that point, they might drop the F word. Now, (laughs) it's not the F word you're thinking. Instead, they might say it's just a... Fetus, so let's have a fetus image here. And so if they say, and isn't this amazing, nine weeks, eh? in the first trimester, incredible image. So if someone were to say, it's just a fetus, we just ask another question back. What kind of fetus? And then we use our phones to show them this. What's that? Oh, it's a dolphin, but a dolphin what? It's a dolphin fetus, very good, because other species have fetuses. Dolphins have fetuses, dogs have fetuses, humans have fetuses. You see, the word fetus, it doesn't tell us what something is. The word fetus tells us how old something is. In the case of the human embryo or fetus, when that human fetus is born and in the mom's arms, what do we call the fetus? A baby. When the baby turns two, what do we call the baby? Toddler. When the toddler turns 13, what do we call the toddler? Toddler teenager, you know, once I was asked that question, an old lady stood up. She goes, impossible. That's what we call them. And when the teenager turns 21, yeah, the, the uh, the parents are clapping. Anyways, so when the teenager turns 21, what do we call the teenager? Even more impossible, right? Yeah, exactly. So the point is, we humans... We have words to refer to age ranges within our species. And the word adult, the word teenager, the word toddler, the word baby are just like the words fetus and embryo. They tell us how old you are, not what you are. If we want to know what you are, we simply ask, hey, what are your parents? And if this embryo's parents are human, the embryo is human. But people will will look at the one-celled embryo and think, but it's just hard to imagine that that tiny dot is equal to a woman. And so we somehow have to find a way to convey that something can look different from us and be underdeveloped in comparison to us and yet valuable like us. How do we do that? I was reading an article a few years ago by this guy named Richard Stith, and he, he made a reference to demonstrate a pro-life point. He made a reference to a Polaroid camera. How many of you guys have used Polaroid cameras? Yeah, I know they were like, thing of our parents' generation, but now they're making this cool comeback. So when you go to like parties and weddings, it's like, take photos with a Polaroid camera. So I want you to think for a moment, Stith made, made a great reference and I, I put a little Canadian twist on it, at least a Stephanie twist, it's not totally Canadian. So, I, you know, you can say to someone who has a hard time believing the one-celled embryo is, is valuable, you can say to them, I want you to imagine you have a Polaroid camera. And I want you to imagine that you take the camera on vacation with you. And I want you to imagine you can say that you go on vacation to where my dad is from. So I'm Canadian, but my dad isn't. Any guesses looking at me? What do I look like? Did someone say Italian? A lot of people say Italian. I think it's because I can talk really fast and use my hands. But I'm not Italian. French. 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 petit peu de français." me? I am not French. Uh, (laughs) Right. I'll give you a wee bit of a hint. Just a wee bit of a hint. Okay. That's right. My dad is from Scotland. Okay. That's right. I'm actually Scottish, right? Yeah. My dad's got a very thick Scottish accent. Okay. It's fantastic. So let's imagine you can say to someone, that you go on vacation to Scotland, and you take a Polaroid camera with you, and you go to a very, very famous part of Scotland that I was in just last year. It's called Loch Ness. Now, who can tell me what's in Loch Ness? (laughs) The monster, that's right. So let's imagine you go on a holiday in Scotland on a boat tour of Loch Ness with your Polaroid camera. And you're taking lots of photos, and you're really hoping to see Nessie. Now let's imagine a couple hours into this boat tour, when you look over your shoulder, you see Nessie. All the humps and the bumps, they're sticking out of the water. So you excitedly point your Polaroid in that direction. You snap a photo and that little card comes out. Just as the card comes out, Nessie goes underwater. Will you be upset she's disappeared? Yes? What will console you in your frustration? The picture, right? Now, when a Polaroid picture first comes out, what do you see on it initially? Kind of black smudges, and what do you do? Shake it like a Polaroid picture, right? Okay, so you shake it, and then in a few moments, you see on the paper kind of the shape of what you would seen in front of you. So let's imagine as you begin to shake this photo, and you're excited because you're like... I can sell this to newspapers back home in America, and everyone will now believe that the Loch Ness Monster isn't myth, but is real. And so I'll get money by selling this photo, and you think about all the things you're gonna do with this money. So you were so excited. So you're like shaking this picture, and let's imagine on this boat tour, is a tourist from another part of the world who has never seen Polaroid pictures. Cameras, they don't know how they work. So they excitedly grab the card from you to have a look at Nessie, but when they look at the picture, they just see those black smudges. And they think, oh, the photo didn't take properly. And then they rip it and toss it in the lake. Would you be upset? Okay, right, we Scottish people people are known for having a wee bit of a temper. Okay, that's right. Imagine the Scottish temper comes out. Right, so you get angry at the person for destroying the picture. And they look at you like you're crazy. And they say, it was just black marks. Why do you care so much about black marks? And you'd likely reply, but it wasn't just black marks. Everything about the image of the Loch Ness Monster was captured in an instant. It just needed time to develop. Oh yeah, you got it, you got it. (laughs) You can thank Richard Stith for that, but I added the Scotland element. So just as the image has value the moment it exists, just as all of us have value today, we have value the moment we exist. And because at fertilization we began our lives, then we should be valued from that point forward. So if we think about the first quality of of heroes and role models, people like Zach and Hannah and Ruby, they did or they did what? They put others ahead of themselves. Since we now know the preborn child is an other, we can convince people of that. Then that means we need to put that preborn child ahead of ourselves. If we think about the second quality, what was it? Perspective, the second quality is all about saying, how can I see this situation differently? It's kind of like, have you heard of the saying, well, is is a glass of water half empty or half full, right? Are you viewing it as negative? Look how much is gone. Or positive, look how much we have left to drink, right? So, perspective doesn't change what's in front of us. It's about changing how we see it. And we need to have perspective when it comes to the abortion debate, especially when there's a poor prenatal diagnosis. Especially when people are told that their baby in the womb has some type of disability, maybe Down syndrome, spina bifida, something else. Because all too often people get that news and they think negative. Their perspective is all bad. Now, can we take the Down syndrome away? No. So if we can't change the situation, what do we do? We change our perspective. Instead of viewing that negatively, we need to view it positively. We need to change how we see There's this amazing photographer from New York by the name of Rick Guidotti, and he works really hard to help people change how they see when it comes to having physical and genetic difference. So I'm going to play for you a short video to learn about Rick's story.
1: Rick Guidotti's life has been all about beauty and the power of images. He spent years as a fashion photographer in Milan, Paris, and with a studio in New York always shooting what fashion editors decreed to be beauty. Then, 15 years ago, when he considered photographing a woman with a disability, he was shocked at images in medical textbooks he consulted. Where, he asked, is the humanity? It doesn't work
2: like this. That doesn't help. This doesn't help. This is sad. I haven't looked at this book their... in
1: 25 years. It's terrifying.
2: Years. There's other ways to present this. I've spoken to so many genetic counselors that have a family in front of them, and they say, okay, this is what your daughter's going to have. Read this, and they cover up the photographs of the fine because it'll freak the family right out. There's got to be something else that we can do. There's got to be another way to present that information to that family. So this is Kiara. Now, Those Kiara
1: medical pictures changed his life. Ever since then, he has devoted his talent to the disabled. People like Kiara. She has albinism, a congenital disorder that not only affects pigmentation, but vision. This is stunning. Oh, it's a great photograph.
2: Yeah, I love the photograph. But
1: they told her, no,
2: don't be a dancer. You don't have enough vision to follow the choreography. You'll never dance in
1: chorus. Find another dream. She said, no. She's New Zealand's Celtic dance champion. His pictures are nothing short of stunning and are being exhibited in public places around the world aimed at changing how we see people who appear different but he started with albinism who was your first person you photographed and you thought oh I see something oh, so yeah, different yeah,
2: yeah, 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 well it was Christine Christine walked into the studio and she's beautiful she has long 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 white hair pale skin but she walks in like that no eye contact no one word answers this kid was teased every single day in her life. And it was like holding up a mirror and saying, look at yourself, you're magnificent. And she saw it. And she just exploded. Like, oh, that's, that's her. I mean, she's so beautiful. And she changed
1: right in front of the lens. She was nothing like the pictures of albinism he had found in medical textbooks. These are the
2: images that I saw, but I also Pleasics. not only saw those images, I saw like freak circus sure. albino families. And, and I was like, oh, this is horrible. And then, and then, of course, all the movie references. Always his freaks. Usually the bad guy, usually the villain, the evil albino.
1: He approached other women who had been born with albinism, people like Margaret Breed. I definitely hadn't seen myself like that before when he
0: approached me and you know, said, I want to photograph you, you're beautiful. Uh, definitely hadn't been in my vocabulary for thinking about myself. I started
2: photographing these kids and hearing their stories and these adults. So I called Life Magazine and said, hey, I've got this great story.
1: Six weeks later, it was a major spread in Life Magazine.
2: Well, then someone said, it's not just about people with albinism. It's about celebrating all difference. Would you come and photograph our families at our chromosome 18 conference? It was in San Antonio. And I'm thinking the hell is a chromosome 18 anomaly? I had no idea.
1: Chromosome 18 anomaly is a genetic defect that can produce a whole range of severe malformations. Were you shocked?
2: It was like I have got slapped in the head, punched in the stomach. It ended. I, I thought, what happens if we're having a baby? And we find out that this baby is born with a chromosome 18, and that's what you see.
1: Can you make beauty out of a trisomy yeah.
2: 18? And there's gorgeousness there. This is that's gorgeous kid, that's Pauline, that's Rebecca, these kids are are superb. Ellington, these are all
1: from the chromosome 18. Remy, she's stunning, she's amazing. Rick is the subject of a film to be released later this year. Award-winning documentarian Joanna Rudnick followed him to a conference of families whose children have chromosome 18 anomalies.
0: Rick took pictures of him the way I saw him. Not the way everybody else saw him, but the way I saw him. And it was the first time I had somebody tell me how beautiful he was. He didn't tell me he was small. He didn't tell me he had fat cheeks from his steroids. And they were these most beautiful pictures of this blue-eyed little baby. Rick took pictures of him the way I saw him, she said. Rick wasn't a photographer who became some scientist who could correct her son's underlying genetic condition. He didn't change the reality the child lived with, but he helped change the perspective through the power of his photography, showing the beauty and wonder of the child and affirming what the child's mom already knew. And so when it comes to people getting the negative news about a baby in the womb that may be physically or genetically different, we want to help them see the more positive perspective they can have. I saw the power of perspective up close and personally a few years ago when I had the chance to spend an afternoon with this guy by the name of Nick Vujicic, he was born without arms and legs, is from Australia, how many of you have heard of this guy? Yeah, pretty cool guy, you can look him up in the internet, he's really funny. You know, when he came to Canada, I surprised my colleagues with him, so I know someone who knows someone who knows Nick, and I have learned it is all about who you know. So I emailed the guy I know and said, hey, any chance you could Connect me to Nick Vojic, and he's like, Well, let me ask someone. And then he asked someone, he asked someone. And Nick was willing to come meet my staff, but I didn't want them to know, I wanted them to be surprised. So the day Nick arrived, like they were probably like cheering louder than all you guys when I got my clicker. Like they were like, What? No way, you're Nick, you're Nick. And then Nick looked at everyone and said, I'm not Nick Vojic, I'm his stunt double. Yeah. He's that kind of funny. So he travels the world. He's got an epic accent. I can't do Australian. I can just do Scottish and English. So, um, but he's got this epic accent. He's really funny. So inspiring and people love him and he's reached millions. However, when Nick was younger and he was in school, he was bullied a lot. He was made fun of. So much so that one night, Nick was so overwhelmed about what he'd never be able to do because he didn't have arms and legs that when he was laying in the family bathtub, he thought about rolling over and drowning himself in an act of suicide. Now, thankfully, Nick didn't do that. He's happy today in a way he wasn't that night in the bathtub. But today, he doesn't have the arms and legs. His reality hasn't changed. So what changed? His perspective. He started to think, not what can't I do because I don't have arms and legs, but what can I do because I don't have arms and legs? Who can I reach? How can I inspire people? And in fact, I saw that that afternoon I spent with him. He invited along a family whose daughter is two years old at the time. Her name is Brooke, as you can see, was born without arms. When, Nick's, when Brooke's parents were pregnant with her, They had a routine ultrasound done, and the ultrasound showed she had no arms, and the doctors offered to kill her by abortion. Brooke's parents said no. They went on to Google. They typed, no arms, enter. And up came info about Nick, and they saw someone who was happy and thriving, even though he was different, and they thought, we're going to make our daughter's life like his. And when I saw Nick and Brooke interact, I thought he can inspire her in a way her mom can't, in a way her dad can't, in a way her sister can't because of what he doesn't have his obstacle has become his opportunity that's the power of perspective another area where we often need the power of perspective is if we think often of the crisis teenage pregnancy a girl might be thinking to herself my mom's going to kill me now if this girl you know tells her mom that she's pregnant will her mom actually physically kill her no, now let me ask you this. On the off chance the mom did, would it be wrong? Yes. Now, if this girl has an abortion, will that actually physically kill the child? Yes. Yeah. so we can change our perspective and look at this picture a different way. And it's if it's wrong for this teenager's mom to kill her daughter because her daughter's pregnant... Wouldn't it also be wrong for the teenage mom to kill her daughter or son just because she's unexpectedly pregnant? So we need to put others ahead of ourselves. We need to have perspective. What was that third quality? We need to do what thing? Right. The right thing, even when it's hard even when it's hard because if we were to think for a moment about all the circumstances a pregnant woman can be in those circumstances might be really hard maybe she's pregnant from rape maybe she's in in poverty she can't afford a child maybe there's health problems maybe she's really young maybe she has no support Um, maybe she feels that this pregnancy is gonna get in the way of her career or her education and so be hard to be pregnant and in that situation And people who support abortion and people who oppose abortion actually agree on something. We agree that to be in these circumstances and pregnant is hard. What I ask people to consider is someone in these circumstances who isn't pregnant, but rather who already has a born child. Would it be easy or hard to care for this born child while in poverty? Hard. Would it be easier or hard to care for this born child while being 15? Hard. Would it be easier or hard to care for this child with no support? Hard. Would it be easier or hard to care for this child knowing every day you looked in that little face her father was a rapist who brutally hurt you? Easier or hard? Hard. Now here's the question Would we ever end the born child's life because the circumstances for the mom were hard? We wouldn't. We would say, as hard as it is, and we're not gonna minimize the difficulty, what we have to do is the right thing even when it's hard. And if that's true for the child who's out of the womb, that's also true for the child who's in the womb. And I wanna leave you with some examples of, of people that I've met or know about who've done the right thing even when it's hard i think of my friend liana i met liana a few years ago when we both spoke in guatemala i don't speak spanish so i had a translator for my audience she speaks english and spanish so gave her talk in spanish which meant i couldn't understand when she was speaking so after the event, we both were taken back to our hotel, and we decided to get to know each other as fellow speakers. And we, we went to the restaurant, and we started chatting. And you know, she mentioned that she was uh, 37. I said, no way, I'm 36. And so we found some common ground and common interests. And then she mentioned she had a daughter. I said, oh, how old is your daughter? And she said, 25. And I did the math. I thought, wait a minute, 25 years ago, I was 11, which means you were 12. And Leanna told me her story. Growing up in Mexico City, when she was 12 years old, she was kidnapped. She was held for days and brutally and repeatedly raped. Eventually, she was released. She found out she was pregnant. And when she was at the hospital, the doctors offered her an abortion. Remarkably, Leanna, at the age of 12, asked the doctor a question. She said, if I have an abortion, will it take away all the terrible feelings that I have from the rape? Will it take away the feelings I have that I'm dirty? Will all that go away? And the doctor had to answer, technically, the abortion wouldn't correct that. And in one of her interviews, Leanna said, that I just didn't see the point. She said, all I knew was there was a life inside of me that needed me and I needed her. So Leanna carried through with that pregnancy gave birth to her daughter, and raised her daughter, who became her best friend. When I was talking with Leanna, she told me that throughout the pregnancy, she was suicidal because of the trauma of the rape. She said, you know, but the reason I didn't attempt to kill myself was because I was pregnant. And I knew if I ended my life, it would end the baby's life, and I didn't want to do that. So yeah, I saved my daughter's life, but she saved mine. You know, telling this story is always powerful, but of late, it's quite painful. It's painful because, very tragically, Leanna's daughter passed away in the last couple years. I was just at an event in Los Angeles last week, and I saw Leanna for the time since her daughter died. And Leanna said to me, losing my daughter has been more traumatic than the kidnapping and the rape. See, when she looked at her daughter, she didn't see who her daughter's father was. She saw who her daughter was. She saw who her daughter made her, which was a mother, and loved her for who she was, not how she came to be. It wasn't easy for Leanna to carry through with that pregnancy, but she did the right thing, even though it was hard. I think also of a a teenager I met uh, by the name of Nadez. She was 19 in college. And she told me her story. She said that when she was 16, she got pregnant. And her boyfriend wanted her to have an abortion. She said her dad disowned her. Her five brothers stopped speaking to her. I said, How'd your mom react? She said, Oh, my mom died when I was two. So here was this girl who was 16 years old, pregnant, no support from the boyfriend, no support from her dad, no support from her brothers, and no mother in her life. And yet here she was at the age of 19 in college telling me she was a single mom of a little boy. How did you do it? I asked her. She said, well, I seeked help, to quote her directly. And she went to a pregnancy care center which connected her to a home for pregnant women where she moved in and this couple that were running the home basically became like parents to her. And she's so happy to have her son. She said, if everyone did what was right instead of what they wanted to do, I think the world would be a better place. It wasn't easy for Nadej to carry through with the pregnancy, but it was right. And so she did it. I think also of Veronica, a student that I met who got pregnant and um, she sent me this photo. She, She carried her pregnancy to term and parented her daughter and as you can see, it's not the best photo but I love why she sent this picture. And so I'm gonna read for you what Veronica said. She said, the picture I've enclosed of Amelia and I does not fully show my face but it's an important picture to me. Amelia became very ill with respiratory problems around seven months, which meant a lot of long nights dealing with fevers, congestion, pain, and a sad little baby who kept waking up due to having trouble breathing in her sleep. She said, I took this picture one night when I decided to let her sleep on my chest instead of in the crib, and she slept throughout the night. She said, I did that every night until she was better. And she said, to me, it represents what we do as mothers, that we stop looking at ourselves as individuals with needs. And instead, we begin to look at how we can serve another and love another. And with doing that comes learning to love ourselves. It wasn't easy for Veronica to be a single mom, but it was right. And she's glad she did it. I want to tell you about my friend Debbie. Debbie's story is a little different from Veronica's and Nadege's and Leanna's. It's similar in that she also was faced with an unplanned pregnancy. But it's different in that, unlike all those women who carried to term, Debbie had an abortion. Now, you might be wondering, well, why is this pro life speaker talking about people whose example we should follow now referencing a woman who had an abortion because we're not supposed to follow what she did? Well, with the abortion, we're not supposed to follow what she did, but with how she responded to what she did, that's where we're supposed to follow Debbie. You see, Debbie came to the realization she'd made a grave mistake when she killed her pre born child, but she believed in God's mercy. So she repented of her sin. She experienced Jesus' forgiveness. And then she realized, God just doesn't just want to forgive us, he wants to transform us. And he wants to show his power and majesty and take the dirty, ugly, sinful, terrible things we do and bring good out of them. It doesn't make the terrible, awful, ugly, sinful things we do good. It just makes God great. It shows how powerful he is, that he can bring good out of bad. And Debbie realized, I can't bring my baby back, but I can save other babies from what happened to mine. So Debbie decided to go around and start to share her story. And as she gave her testimony. One day she was at a school, and a student in the audience knew of a friend who was going to an abortion clinic that morning, and he pulled out his phone and he texted his friend, there's a woman here who regrets her abortion. And the girl texts back, why? And so then they start texting back and forth. Debbie ends her talk. The student tells the teacher and Debbie, and Debbie asks him to keep texting her and ask her, will she meet with Debbie for one hour before making her decision? As it should happen, the girl missed her connecting bus. She's sitting at the bus stop by herself. She said, fine, I'll meet with her. So the teacher, the student, and Debbie, they hop in a car. They drive to the bus stop. They meet with the girl. And Debbie asks her why. She wants the abortion, and the girl said, I feel I have no support. And Debbie said, I give you my vow. I will support you. And your teacher will and your classmate will. And Debbie said, can I tell you the choice I made and why I regret it? And the girl was open, and, and Debbie shared her story. And at the end of that meeting, and instead of going to the abortion clinic, the girl went to a doctor where she heard her baby's heartbeat for the first time. And several months later, this baby girl was born. That's God taking Debbie's sin and redeeming it, exchanging beauty for ashes. So, whatever our story, whatever's in our past, maybe we've had an abortion or we've helped a friend get one, or maybe we've been silent when we should have spoken, whatever that is, let's remember God's mercy. And remember that we're not people of the past, we're people of the present who are pilgrims on a journey to our eternal home. And that we should follow in the footsteps going forward of inspiring people like Hannah or Zach or Ruby, or maybe like that photographer, or maybe like that paramedic and the mom who was on the car. Or maybe like Brooke, the girl without arms, or Nick, the guy without arms and legs. Or maybe like Demi, who, Debbie, who's redeemed her story by God's grace. Or maybe like Leanna, Nadej, or Veronica, whoever it is, let's remember all their stories at their heart. Have a message about putting the other ahead of the self. About having perspective. And about doing the right thing even when it's hard. And if we think about those three qualities, I think they can be summarized into one sentence. This is my body given for you. Because when Jesus got on that cross and by his actions brought to life those words that he'd said at the Last Supper... This is my body given for you. He was putting the other ahead of himself. And he was having perspective, not focusing so much on his death, but the eternal life that he was bringing bringing us. And he did the right thing even when it was hard, when he was in the garden, literally sweating blood, because the thought of what he was going to face was so painful. Heroes and role models who put others ahead of themselves, who have perspective, and who do the right thing even when it's hard, are following Jesus' example of this is my body given for you. And so it's my hope as you go forth from this event and you go back home, you live that philosophy in every encounter that you have. God bless you.